Welcome to day 183 of the story that changes everything. Our readings for today begin the incredible book of Isaiah. We're reading chapters 1 through 3. But before we begin, today also marks the halfway point of our journey through the Bible. So way to go. We're halfway there. Here are some thoughts to guide your reading for today. The book of Isaiah begins this way. The vision about Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, Amos' son, saw in the days of Judah's kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This opening verse situates the book historically. We know nothing about the historical person Isaiah except what can be assumed through the book. The focus of the book is going to be on Judah and Jerusalem. Remember that after the reign of Solomon, the nation of Israel divided in two. The ten tribes known as Ephraim or Israel went to the north with the capital city of Samaria, and the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin lived in the south with the capital city of Jerusalem. It is during the lifetime of Isaiah and during the reign of Ahaz around 721 BC that the empire of Assyria would come and conquer the northern tribes or Ephraim, and it was also during that time that they would threaten the welfare and existence of Judah and Jerusalem, but Jerusalem would survive. The opening verses mention four successive kings during the life of Isaiah. Uzziah, who reigned from 791 to about 750, was a strong and prosperous king. Not much is mentioned about him in the book, except that his death seems to be the event that launched Isaiah into his prophetic calling. Uzziah's son, Jotham, reigned from about 750 to probably 735, but he's never referenced in the rest of the book. It is the latter two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, who will figure most significantly in the life and work of the book of Isaiah. Ahaz, who reigned from 732 to 716, will largely be viewed by the book as a weak and ineffective king. In the imagination of the prophetic book, Ahaz will be the embodiment of Israel's worst traits of unfaithfulness. Hezekiah, on the other hand, who reigned from 716 to 687, he will be treated favorably and will in some ways embody the possibilities when God's people are faithful to the Lord. One of the odd things about the book of Isaiah is that it will not only deal with the reign of these 8th century kings, but it will also move into the 6th century and the conquest of Judah by the Babylonian Empire in 587 BC, and then the change of fortunes brought about almost 50 years later through the Persian Empire and its leader Cyrus, who allowed the Judean exiles to return to Jerusalem in 540. So here's the question. What are we to make of a book that spans over 200 years of historical time? How can a single prophet speak into that many historical moments? One possibility is that the historical Isaiah, who lived during the reign of Ahaz and Hezekiah, wrote the book addressing the challenges of his day, but then was also given special prophetic abilities or special graces to anticipate and speak into events that would come into the future long after he was gone. In the 18th and 19th centuries, biblical scholars began to take a special interest in trying to locate biblical texts in their appropriate historical context. And in those years, a more critical theory about Isaiah developed that has served largely as the consensus among scholars now for at least a century or more. According to that theory, chapters 1 through 39 are linked to the original Isaiah, who lived and served as a critical prophetic voice during the time of Ahaz and Hezekiah. But then chapters 40 through 55 
were a later addition to the work of the original Isaiah that then emerged through some unnamed source or sources around 540 BC as the Persian Empire was beginning to threaten Babylon. And then chapters 56 through 66 are dated even later, perhaps around 520, when the Judeans who had returned to Jerusalem faced the daunting task of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and its life and community, these sections are now referred to by scholars as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Isaiah. And as we walk through the book together, I will draw attention to those different contexts and to those three different sections. In the most recent scholarship on Isaiah, however, another layer of formation is also described, and that is to think about the hand or hands of the editor or editors who put all these pieces together in the theological whole that we now have. As we'll see, themes like calling and lack of faithfulness, God's judgment, but also God's hope and final redemption, they're all woven together again and again throughout the book so that hints of both Israel's past failure, but also God's redemptive future, those keep making appearances throughout the text and then give the entire book a theological coherence. So we'll also have to think about that hand that put it all together as well. Well, after the contextualizing first verse, verses 2 through 3 of chapter 1 provide the introductory theme for the book. God calls on all of heaven and earth to observe the broken relationship between Yahweh and his people. God created a people, but they have rebelled against him. That rebellion is explicated in detail in verses 4 through 17. In a poem that functions a bit like a legal indictment against Israel by God, God says Israel is wounded, broken, and sick. Most scholars assume the devastation described in the chapter is the impact of the Assyrian invasion surrounding Judah and Jerusalem. As verse 9 states, if Yahweh had not spared the few remaining in Judah, Israel would have resembled Sodom and Gomorrah, a people and territory just utterly destroyed with no hope and no future. At the center of Jerusalem stands the temple. In powerful prophetic words, God rejects the continuing religious practices associated with the temple. It's not that God wants them to stop, but what God wants is not the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats, but but a people who learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, and defend the orphan and the widow. He doesn't want just spiritual practices devoid of the beauty of God's holiness. Powerfully and beautifully, verses 18 through 20 offer to God's people a way back. If the people agree and obey, Yahweh has spoken about the possibility of grace and renewal. The chapter ends with a reprise of the problem, but also the possibilities. Jerusalem has become a place of impurity and injustice, but God can renew them as a righteous city and a faithful town. But if they do not hear and respond, they will draw dry up like dead trees and be consumed by the next wildfire. Chapter 2 opens with some of the most profound words of hope in First Isaiah. God's redemption of Jerusalem and Judah will not be for its own sake, but for the sake of the nations. In the days to come, imagines the prophet, all the nations will stream to Jerusalem and learn the ways of God, ways that will end the violence all around them and bring lasting and life-giving peace. They will no longer learn to make war. This brief proclamation of hope ends with a call to worship. So come, house of Jacob, let's walk by the Lord's light. Chapter 2, verse 5 through chapter 4, verse 6 forms a lengthy collection of prophetic judgments 
ending with the promise of restoration. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, the problem is described with the repeated use of the word full. The city is full of sorcerers, full of silver and gold, and filled with idols. Their moral life, their economic life, and even their religious life are full of dishonesty and distortions. Rather than being full of God, it's full of this other stuff. Therefore, God will overturn everything and judge all their places of security. And then, rather than living in security and splendor in Jerusalem, the people will have to run to the caves and rocks to live among the rats and the bats. Chapter 3 inverts the typical oracle of judgment. It begins with the picture of what life in the city will look like when God's judgment happens, and then turns to the reason for the judgment. Verses 1 through 7 describe a place where stable leadership has been taken away. The city's being run by youth who don't know what they're doing. Crime is running rampant. There's no physicians. No one wants to take charge. But the reason for those consequences is described then from verse 8 on. The problem is that those who run the city now, rather than running it with justice, run it with the power for themselves. God says, how dare you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of heavenly forces. The chapter ends with a familiar prophetic picture. Jerusalem is like an arrogant woman, lavishly dressed and flirting with idolatry, but her beauty and fine clothing will be taken away, and she will lament and mourn, And rather than living in pride, she'll sit on the ground in desolation. I find our cultural fascination with post-apocalyptic literature, movies, and television interesting. There's always some new zombie show or movie coming out. There's a part of us, I think, that's rightly concerned that the current lives that we're living may not be able to be sustained. There's this nagging question, will our arrogance and pride actually bring about some kind of cataclysmic fall? And if that happens, then where will our security be found? What will our life be like? Isaiah offers to the people pictures of their own potential ancient dystopian reality that if they fail to listen to God and continue to misuse the power and influence that God has given them, everything will be turned over and their places of security will now be insecure. As we'll see tomorrow, Isaiah can't go very many pages without speaking words of hope in the midst of his words of judgment, but I think it's important that we not just skip in the book from hopeful passage to hopeful passage without wrestling with Isaiah's deep prophetic concerns about a people whose arrogance, materialism, violence, and sensual idolatry, that all of that will be their undoing. So come, house of Jacob, let's walk by the Lord's light. We continue our journey through Isaiah tomorrow with chapters 4 through 6, and we're adding the first half of Psalm 78. We're going to read verses 1 through 39. I'll talk to you tomorrow.